Chapter Three, Part G of Greener Than You Think. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Three, Part G. The small city of Pomona was swollen to boomtown size by the excursion there of so many enterprises forced from Los Angeles. Ordinary citizens without heavy responsibilities, when uprooted, thought only of putting as much distance as possible between themselves and their persecutor. But the officials, the industrialists, the businessmen, the staffs of great newspapers hovered close by, like small boys near the knothole in the ballpark fence from which they'd been banished by an officious cop. The intelligencer was lodged over the print shop of a local tributary, which had agreed to the ousting with the most hypocritical assurances of joy at the honor done them, and payment, in the smallest possible type, by the addition to the great newspaper's masthead of the words, and Pomona post-telegram. Packed into this inadequate space were the entire staff and files of the Metropolitan Daily. No wonder the confusion obviated all possibility of normal routine. In addition, the disruption of railroad schedules made the delivery of mail a hazard rather than a certainty. Perhaps this was why, weeks after they were due, it was only upon my return from interviewing Miss Frances I received my checks from the weekly ruminant and the honeycomb. It may have been the boomtown atmosphere I have already mentioned, or because at the same time I got my weekly salary. At any event, moved by an unaccountable impulse, I took the two checks to a barber shop where, perhaps incongruously, a well-known firm of Los Angeles stockbrokers had quartered themselves. I forced the checks upon a troubled-looking individual, too taciturn to be mistaken for the barber, and mumbling, "'Buy me all the shares of consolidated pemmican and allied concentrates this will cover,' hurried out before sober thought could cause me to change my mind.' for certainly this was no investment my cool judgment would approve, but the wildest hunch, causing me to embark on what was no less than a speculation. I went back to the desk I shared with ten others, bitterly regretting the things I might have bought with the money, and berating myself for my rashness. Only the abnormal pressure of events could have made me yield to so irrational an impulse. In the meantime, things happened fast. Barely had the tardiest intelligencer employees got away when the enveloping jaws of the weed closed tight, catching millions of dollars' worth of property within. The project to bomb the grass out of existence, dormant for some weeks, could no longer be denied. Even its most ardent advocates, however, now conceded reluctantly that ordinary explosives would be futile, more than futile, and assistance to the growth by scattering the propagating fragments. For the first time, people began talking openly of using the outlawed atomic bomb. The instant response to this suggestion was an overwhelming opposition. The President, Congress, the Army, Navy, and public opinion generally agreed that the weapon was too terrible to use in so comparatively trivial a cause. But the machinery for some type of bombing had been set in motion and had to be used. The fuel was stored, the airfields jammed. All available planes, new, old, obsolescent, and obsolete, assembled. And for three days and nights the great fleet shuttled back and forth over the jungled area, dropping thousands of tons of incendiary bombs. Following close behind, still more planes dropped cargoes of fuel to feed the colossal bonfire. 
inverted lightning flashes leapt upward, and after them great rolling white, yellow, red, and blue flames. The smoke, the smell of roasting vegetation, the roar and crackle of the conflagration, and the heat engendered, were all noticeable as far away as Capistrano and Santa Barbara. Down from the sky, through the surface of the grass, the incendiaries burned great patches clear to the earth. The weed, which had resisted fire so contemptuously before, suddenly became inflammable, and burned like celluloid for days. Miles of twisted stems, cleaned of blade and life, exposed tortured nakedness to aerial reconnoiter. Bald spots the size of villages appeared, black and smoldering. The shape of the mass was altered, and altered again. But when, long after, the last spark flickered out, and the last ember grew dull, the grass itself, torn and injured, but not defeated or even noticeably beaten back, remained. It had been a brilliant performance, and an ineffective one. The failure of the incendiary bombing not only produced ruefully triumphant I told you so's from disgruntled and doubly outraged property owners, but a new crop of bids for the intelligencer's reward to the developer of a saving agent from suggested emigrations to Mars and giant magnifying glasses set up to wither the grass with the aid of the sun, they ranged to projects for cutting a canal clear around the weed from San Francisco Bay to the Colorado River and letting the Pacific Ocean do the rest. Another solution envisaged shutting off all light from the grass by means of innumerable radio beams to interrupt the sun's rays in the hope that with an inability to manufacture chlorophyll, an atrophy would set in. Several contestants urged inoculating other grasses, such as bamboo, with a metamorphizer, expecting the two giants of vegetation, like the Kilkenny cats, would end by devouring each other. This proposal received such wide popular support, there is reason to believe it got some serious consideration in official quarters. But it was eventually abandoned on the ground that while it gave only a single slim chance of success, it certainly doubled the potential gross to contend with. The analogy of a backfire in forest conflagrations was deemed poetic but inapplicable. More comparatively prosaic courses included walling in the grass with concrete. The Great Wall of China was the only work of man visible from the moon. Were Americans to let backward China best them? A concrete wall only a mile high and half a mile thick could be seen by any curious astronomer on the planet Venus, assuming Venerians to be afflicted with terrestrial vices, and would cost no more than a very small war, to say nothing of employing thousands who would otherwise dissipate the taxpayers' money on relief. A variant of this plan was to smother the weed with tons of dry cement and sand from airplanes. The rainy season, due to begin in a few months, would add the necessary water, and the grass would then be encased in a presumably unbreakable tomb. But the most popular suggestion embodied the use of salt, ordinary table salt. From their own experience in backyard and garden, eager men and women wrote in urging this common mineral be used to end the menace of the grass. It will kill anything, wrote an Imperial Valley farmer. Its lethal effect on plant life is instantaneous, agreed a former Beverly Hills resident. I know there is not anything like salt to destroy weeds, was part of a long and rambling letter on blue-ruled tablet paper. In the June of 1926, or seven, I cannot remember exactly, it may have been twenty-eight, I accidentally dropped some salt on a beautiful plumbago. 
It was proposed to spray the surface, to drive tunnels through the roots to conduct brine, to bombard sectors with sixteen-inch guns firing shrapnel loaded with salt, to isolate by means of a wide saline band the whole territory, both occupied and threatened. Salt enthusiasts argued that nothing except a few million tons of an inexpensive mineral would be wasted if an improbable failure occurred, but if successful in stopping the advance, the country could wait safely behind its rampart till some weapon to regain the overrun area was found. But the salt advocates didn't have everything their own way. There arose a bitter anti-salt faction, taking pleasure at hurling sneers at these optimistic predictions and delight in demolishing the arguments. Miss Francis, they said, who ought to know more about it than anyone else, claimed the grass would break down even the most stable compound and take what it needed. Well, salt was a compound, wasn't it? If the pro-salt fanatics had their way, they would just be offering food to a hungry plant. The salt supporters asked what proof Miss Francis had ever advanced that the plant absorbed everything, or indeed that her metamorphizer had anything to do with metabolism and had not merely induced some kind of botanical giantism. The anti-salts, jeering at their enemies as Salonists and Salonites, promptly threw away Miss Francis's hypothetical support and relied instead on the proposition that if the salt were to be efficacious, an unlikely contingency, it would have to reach the roots, and if crude oil poured on when the plant was young had not done so, what possible hope could the pro-salt cranks offer for their panacea now the rampant grass was grown to its present proportions? The salt argument cut society in half. Learned doctors battled in the columns of scientific journals. Businessmen dictated sputtering letters to their secretaries. Housewives wrote newspapers or argued heatedly in the corner grocery. Radio commentators cautiously skirted the edge of the controversy, and more than one enthusiast had to be warned by his sponsor. Fist fights started in taverns over the question, and judicious bartenders served beer without offering the objectionable seasoning with it. The intelligencer at the start was vehemently anti-salt. "'Is there an American Cato?' Lafassacy asked, "'to call for the final ignominy suffered by Carthage to be applied, "'not to the land of an enemy, but to our own?' Shortly after this editorial, entitled Carthage, California, appeared, the intelligencer swung to the opposite side, and Lafassacy offered the pro-salt argument under the heading Lot's Wife. The daughters of the American Revolution declared themselves in favor of salt, and refused the use of Constitution Hall to an anti-salt meeting. Stung, the Central Executive Committee of the Communist Party, circulated a manifesto declaring the use of salt was an attempt to encircle not the grass, for that was a mere subterfuge of imperialism, but the Soviet Union, and called upon all its peripheral fringe to write their congressmen and demonstrate against the Saline Project. From India, the aged Mohandas Gandhi asked in piping tones why such a valuable adjunct was to be wasted in rich America, while impoverished riots paid a harsh tax on this necessity of life. And the Council of People's Commissars, careless of the action of the American Stalinists, offered to sell the United States all its surplus salt. The herring picklers of Holland struck in a body, while the American salt refiners bid as one to produce on a cost-plus basis. This last was a clincher, and the obscurantic anti-salts received the death-blow they richly deserved. The Communist Party reversed themselves swiftly. 
all respectable and patriotic people lined up behind salt. With such popular unanimity apparent, the government could do no less than take heed. A band twenty miles wide stretching from Oceanside to the Salton Sea, from the Salton Sea to the little town of Mojave, and from there to Ventura, was marked out on maps to be salt sown by the very same bomber command which had dropped the spectacular but futile incendiaries. The triumph of the salt people was ungenerous in its enthusiasm. The disgruntled anti-salts, now a mere handful of diehards publishing an esoteric press, muttered everyone would be sorry, wait and see. The grass itself waited for nothing. It seemed to take new strength from the indignities inflicted upon it, and it increased, if anything, its tempo of growth. It plunged into the ocean in a dozen spots at once. It swarmed over sand which had never known anything but cactus, and the Sierra Madres became great humps of green against the skyline. This last conquest shocked those who had thought the mountains immune in their inhospitable heights. Cynodon Dactylon, uninoculated, had always shunned coldness, though it survived some degrees of frost. The giant growth, however, seemed to be less subject to this inhibition, though it too showed slower progress in the higher and colder regions. The intelligencer planned to move from Pomona to San Bernardino, and, if necessary, to Victorville. Daily, La Facesie became a sterner taskmaster, a more pettishly exacting employer. By the living guts of William Lloyd Garrison, he raged, had no one ever driven the simple elements of punctuation into my bloody head? Had no schoolmaster, in moments of heroic enthusiasm, attempted to pound a few rules of rhetoric through my incrassate skull? Had I never heard of taste? Was the word style outside my masculine vocabulary? What the devil did I mean by standing there with my mouth open, exposing my unfortunate teeth for all the world to see? Was it possible for any allegedly human to be as adulpated as I? and, had I been thrust from my mother's womb, I suppress his horrible adjectives, only to torment and afflict his long-suffering editorial patience. A hundred times I was tempted to sever my connection with this journalistic autocrat. My column was widely read, and two publishing houses had approached me with the idea of putting out a book, any editorial revision and emendations to be taken care of by them without disturbing me at all. I could have allied myself with almost any paper in the country, undoubtedly at better than the meager stipend La Facesie doled out to me. But I think loyalty is one of the most admirable of virtues, and it was not in my nature to desert the intelligencer, certainly not till I could secure a lengthy and ironclad contract, such as for some reason other papers seemed unwilling to offer me. In accord with this innate loyalty of mine, I take no credit for it, I was born that way. I did not balk at the assignments given me, though they ranged from the hazardous to the absurd. One of the more pleasant of these excursions sought up by Mr. Lafassacy was to fly over the grass and to Catalina, embark on a chartered boat there, and survey the parts of the coast now overrun. A fresh point of observation. Accompanying me was the movie cameraman, Rafe Slafe, as uncommunicative and earnest in his medications as before. 
It was a sad sight to see neat rectangular patterns of roads and highways, cultivated fields and orange groves, checkered towns and sprawling suburbs come to an abrupt stop, where they were blotted out by the regimented uniformity of the onrushing grass. For miles we flew above its dazzling green, until our eyes ached from the sameness and our minds were dulled from the lack of variety below. On the sea far ahead, a frothing white cap broke the monotony of color, a flying fish jumped out of the water to glisten for a moment in the sun, loose seaweed floated on the surface to change in some degree the intense blue. But here below no alien touch lightened the unnatural homogeneity. No solitary tree broke this endless pasture, now healed of the wounds inflicted by the incendiary bombing. No salt lick, wandering stream, or struggling bush enlivened this prairie. There was not even an odd confirmation, a higher clump here or there, a dead patch to relieve the unimaginative symmetry. I have read of men going mad in solitary confinement from looking at the same unchanging walls. Well, here was a solitary cell hundreds of miles in area, and its power to destroy the mind was that much magnified. I got little consolation from the presence of the others, for the pilot was engaged in navigation, while Slaife was, as ever, single-mindedly recording mile after mile of the verdant map beneath, never pausing nor speaking, though how he justified the use of so much film when one foot was identical with what went before, and the next, I could not understand. At last we cleared the awful cancer and flew over the sea. A thousand variations I had never noticed before offered themselves to my suddenly refreshed eyes. Not for one split second was the water the same, leaping, tossing, spiraling, foaming back upon itself, making its own shadows and mirroring in an infinitely faceted glass the sunlight. It changed so constantly it was impossible to grasp even a fraction of its mutations. But Slaife evidently did not share my blessed relief, for he turned his camera back to catch every last glimpse of the solid green I was so happy to leave behind. At the airport, on the way to the boat, on the little vessel itself, I expected Slaife to relax, to indulge in a conversational word, to do something to mark him as more than an automaton. But his actions were confined to using the nasal syringe, to exchanging one camera for another, to quizzing the sun through that absurd lorgnette, and to muttering over cans of film, which he sorted and resorted, always to his inevitable discontent. While we waited to start, a perverse fog rolled between us and the mainland. It made a dramatic curtain over the object of our visit, and emphasized the normality and untouchedness of Avalon behind us. As the boat got under way, strain my eyes as I could eastward, not the faintest suggestion of the ominous outline showed. We sped toward it, cutting the purple sea into white foam. Slaife was in the bow, customarily taciturn, the crew were busy. Alone on board, I had no immediate occupation, and so I took out my copy of the Intelligencer and after reading the column which went under my name, and noting the incredible bad taste which had diluted when it had not excluded everything I had written, I turned, as for consolation, to the market quotations. The Dow Jones average was down again, as might be expected since the spread of the wheat had unsettled the delicate balance of the stock market. 
my eyes automatically ran down the column and over to the corner where stocks were quoted in cents to reassure my faith in consolidated pemmican and allied concentrates. There it was, immovable through any storm or stress, or injudicious investment by Albert Weiner, C.P. and A.C., one-sixteenth. I must have raised my eyes from the newspaper just about the time the fog lifted. Before us, like the smoke wreath accompanying the discharge of some giant cannon, the green mass volleyed into the sea. It did not slope gently like a beach, or offer a rugged shoulder to be gnawed away as a rocky cliff, but thundered forward into the surging brine, yielding but invincible, a land force potent as the wave itself. Hundreds of feet into the air it towered, falling abruptly in a sharp wall, its ends and fringes merging with the surf and wallowing in happy freedom. The breakers did not batter it, for it offered them no enmity to rage and boil upon, but giving way with each surge, smothered the eternal anger of the ocean with its own placid surety. The seagulls, the hell-divers, pelicans, sea-pigeons had not been affected. Resting briefly on the weed, they winged out for their food and returned. It mattered no more to them that the man-made piers and wharves, the sea-coast towns, jip-joints, roller-coasters, whorehouses, cottages, hotels, streets, gas-tanks, quarries, pottery-kilns, oil-fields, and factories had been swallowed up, than if some old wreck in the sand, once offering them foothold, had been taken back by the sea. If I thought the grass awesome from the land, monotonous from the air, it seemed eternal from the water. But impressive as it was from any angle, there were just so many things I could say about it. My art, unlike slaves, not permitting of endless repetition, I was glad to get back to the Pomona office, to pad what little copy I had, retire into the small tent I shared with six other sufferers from the housing shortage, and attempt some sleep. The course mapped for the salt band caused almost as much controversy, anguish, and denunciation as the proposal itself. Cities and towns fought to have the salt band laid between them and the approaching grass, understandably ignoring larger calculations and considerations. Cattle ranchers shot at surveying parties, and individual farmers or homeowners fought against having their particular piece of property covered with salt. The original plan had contemplated straight lines. Eventually the band twisted and turned like a typewriter ribbon plagued by a kitten, avoiding not only natural obstacles, but the domains of those with proper influence. Recovery plants worked three shifts a day to pile up great mounds of the white crystals, which were hauled to the airfields by trains and trucks. The laden trucks moved over the highways bumper to bumper. The freight train's engines nosed the cabooses of those in front. All other goods were shunted on sidings. Perishables rotted, valuables went undelivered. All transportation was reserved for the salt. Not only was the undertaking unprecedented for its magnitude, but the urgency and the breakdowns, bottlenecks, shortages, and disruptions caused by the grass itself added to the formidable accomplishment. But the people were aroused and aware of the danger, and they put almost the same effort behind the salt sowing as they would have in turning out instruments of war. The sowing itself was, in a way, anticlimactic. By the whim of lafacity, I went in one of the planes on the first day of the task. My protests, as always, proving futile, I spent a very boresome time flying back and forth over the same patch of ground. That is, it would have been boresome, 
had it not been for the dangers involved, for in order to sow the salt evenly and thickly it was necessary to fly low, to hedge-hop, as the pilot called it. If the parachute jump had unnerved me, the flying at terrific speed straight toward a tree, hill, or electric power line, and then curving upward at the last second to miss them by a whisper, must have put gray in my hair and taken years from my life. The rivers, washes, and creeks on the inner edge had been roughly dammed to lessen future erosion of the salt, and inappropriately gay flags marked the boundaries of the area. Owing to our speed, the salt billowed out behind us like powdery fumes. But beyond the evidence of this smoky trail, we might merely have been a group of madmen confusedly searching for some object lost upon the ground. In reporting for the intelligencer, it was impossible to dramatize the event. Even the rewrite men were baffled, for under the enormous head salt sown, they could not find enough copy to carry over from page one. End of chapter 3, part G.